Hey y'all, this week we'll be starting our discussion of ground school topics, starting with pilot qualifications for the commercial pilot certificate. We'll be looking at the requirements you'll have to meet before taking your commercial pilot checkride and the privileges you'll have once you pass. This is episode 29 of the Plaid Pilot Podcast, and I'm your host, Todd Weld. Happy New Year, everybody. We made it to 2024. I hope everybody had a great New Year's, great holiday season in general. Got some time off of work, got to spend some time with family, that kind of stuff. Maybe got to do some flying if you live in an area that has decent weather this time of year. I hope everyone had the opportunity to sit down and set some goals for the coming year, put together a plan to make those goals happen. Uh, I had a few people reach out on Instagram this week about their aviation goals this year. I'm going to jump right into our topic this week, but afterwards, if you'll hang around, I'd like to share some of those goals with you for some inspiration. So in the meantime, if you want to reach out, you have questions, topics, suggestions, anything, you just want to say hi, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at Todd at com or send me a DM on Instagram at ThePlaidPilot. Uh, additionally, I'm also on Facebook and Threads. Uh, I'm going to make a real effort this year, uh, try and be more engaged on social media than I have in the last few months. Uh, life's been kind of crazy, uh, but I do miss the interaction with you guys, and I am looking forward to growing the community. So this week, we're going to be talking about what is required to take your commercial pilot checkride. We're going to be looking at the pilot qualifications section of the ACS. We could do a whole episode on what the ACS is, how to use it, uh, but the short version, in case anyone is unfamiliar... Uh, The ACS stands for Airman Certification Standards. It's the FAA document. It basically lays out everything that you need to know to earn a particular license or rating. During your checkride, the DPE has to stick to the topics and the tasks that are listed in the ACS. Granted, a lot of those tasks are pretty broad um, and they can fit a lot of different things in there, but everything being evaluated has to be outlined in that document. So if you aren't familiar with the ACS, whether you're working towards your private, commercial, whatever, get familiar with it, read it once, cover to cover, and then refer back to it often through your studying. Um, To be clear, the ACS is not a training document, and you should not limit your study strictly to what's contained in the ACS, just in the interest of being the best, the safest, and the most knowledgeable pilot that you can be. But it is a great tool to evaluate your readiness for the checkride as you get closer to, you know, taking that checkride. And since I'm in the process of getting ready for my commercial checkride, seems as good a place as any to start. And I will include a link to the Commercial Pilot ACS in the show notes for you in case you want to download it and give it a read as you listen, um, or if you just haven't seen that before. It's also on the FAA's website. You can find it on there. But if you just want to click it from the show notes, you can do that as well. But we're going to be focusing on Area of Operations 1, which is pre-flight preparation, and specifically Task A, pilot qualifications. Essentially, this task wants us to show or to prove that we understand what's required to qualify a pilot to take the commercial pilot checkride, um, as well as understanding the privileges and the limitations involved with that new certificate after the checkride. So first of all, to take your commercial pilot checkride, you have to be 18 years old, you have to possess a private pilot certificate, you got to be able to read, write, speak, and understand the English language, which if you have your private pilot certificate, that was a requirement for that as well. So it shouldn't be a problem. You have to have a current flight review or equivalent, and you have to have a medical certificate. Now, a lot of people think if you're taking your commercial pilot checkride, you have to have at least a second class medical 
because you need to have at least a second class medical to exercise the privileges of the commercial certificate. However, for the check ride itself, all you need to do to be legal is be able to carry passengers. This isn't for hire. Doing the check ride, you're not being paid to take the check ride. So you can do that with a third class medical or even basic med, assuming your aircraft meets the basic med requirements, which most GA aircraft you'd be training in do. And speaking of carrying passengers, you also must be current to carry passengers. So you need your three landings within the 90 days prior to the check ride. I didn't mention that earlier. So 18 years old, private pilot, medical certificate, current to carry passengers, and you also need to have passed your knowledge test. A lot of times we'll call this the written test, although knowledge test is the official term. And assuming you didn't score 100% on that test, you're also going to need an endorsement from your CFI saying that they've gone over all of the deficient areas with you. And of course, finally, you have to have an endorsement from your instructor stating that you've received the necessary training and you are prepared for the checkride. Of course, that begs the question, what constitutes the required training? Luckily, this is all laid out for us by the FAA. Uh, Before your CFI will give you that endorsement, you must have received and logged flight and ground training in all of the areas of operation listed in Code of Federal Regulations, Title 14, Section 61-127. And just a quick note, when we're talking about the Federal Aviation Regulations, the official term for that is Title 14 of the Code of Federal Regulations and then whatever section you're referring to. So the the FAR AIM is a collection of those regulations and, of course, the Aeronautical Information Manual, but this actually comes from the written regulations and laws of the United States, Title 14 to be specific. So from here on out, rather than say Code of Federal Regulations, I'm just going to say Title 14 CFR, make things a little easier. But just so you know what I'm talking about, the number that I reference after Title 14 CFR, you will be able to go into your FAR AIM, and most of the regulations that I cite in this episode will be in there. But if not, you can always go to ecfr.gov. I'll link that to the show notes as well, especially with things that update fairly regularly. Uh, Sometimes it's easier just to get that electronic copy rather than buy the new book every year. Anyway, for commercial single-engine airplane, these area of operations that are listed are pre-flight preparation, pre-flight procedures, airport and seaplane base operations, takeoffs, landings, and go-arounds, performance maneuvers, ground reference maneuvers, navigation, slow flight and stalls, emergency operations, high-altitude operations, and post-flight procedures. Not coincidentally, these are the exact areas of operation listed in the ACS that you'll be tested over, almost in that exact order. So those are the ones that you have to have received and logged flight training, ground and flight training, to be endorsed for the checkride. Now, the FAA also requires that you meet the aeronautical experience requirements as well. And these are going to vary depending on the commercial certificate you're shooting for. For example, gliders, rotorcraft, etc. They all have different requirements, but we're going to focus on the airplane single engine land just to make things simple. That's the one I'm going for. That's you know going to be the first one that most people get. Also, it's important to note, this refers to Part 61 training. If you are at a Part 141 school, the experience requirements are going to vary school to school. They're going to be laid out in your TCO, though. So you would need to go to that document to see exactly what you need to complete. So to be eligible for your commercial pilot certificate under Part 61, you need to have logged 250 hours. That's the big number you're trying to reach. But within those 250 hours, you also need to have logged 100 hours in powered aircraft, 
50 of which must be in airplanes. So if you've logged time in gliders, that will count towards the overall 250 hours. And if you log time in helicopters, that's going to count towards the 100 hours in powered aircraft, and only 50 hours must be in airplanes, assuming that all the other blocks are checked. Uh, you need to have 100 hours pilot and command flight time. 50 of those hours must be in airplanes, and 50 of those hours must be cross-country flights, meaning flying somewhere and landing at least 50 nautical miles away, and 10 of those cross-country pilot and command hours must be in an airplane. So we have a lot of different categories broken down here. Now, at this level, pilot and commander PIC hours probably aren't something that you're hurting for. Uh, but if you've logged a whole lot of hours with an instructor before you earned your private pilot, just be mindful that any duel that you received with an instructor before getting your private pilot, they aren't going to count as PIC time. Uh, this usually bites instrument applicants who count their cross-country time with their instructor as PIC time, and they find out that's not the case. You know, like I said, usually by the time you get to the commercial level, this isn't an issue, but it is something to be mindful of. You just want to verify, keep yourself from getting bitten at the check ride. You also need to log 20 hours of training on the areas we talked about in 61127, uh, and that needs to include 10 hours of hood time, uh, simulated instrument time, which as long as it's logged properly, this can actually be done while you're working on your instrument rating. Uh, also needs to include 10 hours in a complex, turbine, or technically advanced aircraft, TAA for short. Uh, and the time in these aircraft doesn't have to be separate from the other training requirements. So the 10 hours in the complex turbine or technically advanced aircraft can be that instrument time. It can be whatever, as long as you had 10 hours in one of those three types or a combination of the three. You also need to log a two hour, 100 nautical mile or more training flight during the day and a two hour, 100 nautical or more training flight at night. And then you'll need to log three hours of checkride flight preparation within the two calendar months before the checkride. This is three hours of dual checkride flight preparation, two calendar months before the checkride. This one's important with the long wait times for checkrides right now because you can meet all of the requirements, you can get signed off, everything like that, and then this one can actually expire because it's kind of a rolling time frame. So make sure if your DPE is a few months out that you're going up with an instructor now and again to stay current which isn't a bad idea anyway. You just want to make sure that you don't have a check ride on the first and find out that your two calendar months expired the day before, and now you technically don't meet the requirements for the check ride anymore. And then for solo requirements, those were all of the dual training requirements. For solo requirements, you need 10 hours of solo flight time, or this can be what they call supervised solo with an instructor on board that doesn't do anything. They can't help you out or say anything or whatever. They are just there Usually this is for like insurance reasons. If the insurance refuses to allow you to solo in the aircraft that you're using, um, you can meet these requirements with an instructor on board that isn't doing anything. Now these 10 hours need to include five hours of VFR night flying with 10 takeoffs and landings involving a flight in the pattern at an airport with an operating control tower. For me, this was one of the hardest things to get done. I was working on this in the summer. So the sun's setting late. I ended up having to fly down to Phoenix, I think. It might have been Prescott. I don't remember for sure without checking my logbook. Uh, but I had to fly down to Arizona and actually do it there just to find a towered airport that the tower remained operational long enough after the sun went down to get those 10 landings. So if you're listening to this, you're still a ways from your commercial. Start logging every night landing you do with a note if the tower was operational. I'm sure over the years I'd gotten well more than my 10 takeoff and landings 
at night with an operational tower, but because my home field tower closes and I didn't make a note of which landings the tower was open for, I was kind of starting from scratch and having a way to prove which ones I couldn't go back years later after the fact and, and it would just be guessing with no times written down. So learn from my mistakes, log all of the details. Legally, you only have to record events you are using to prove eligibility for new ratings or certificates and the ones that you're using to prove currency. But in most cases, it's just a good idea to log every flight and include the details. Save you some work in the long run. Now, finally, this 10 hours of solo time has to include a cross-country flight of at least 300 nautical miles with landings at three points, one of which must be at least 250 nautical miles from the starting point. Unless you're in Hawaii, in which case the longest leg only needs to be 150 nautical miles. And that covers your certification requirements. I know it's a lot of little things. Uh, feel free to rewind and take some notes. This is not rewinding anymore, but you can go back, uh, take some notes. Additionally, all of the experience requirements are listed out for you in 14 CFR section 61.129. Please, please, please make sure you understand all of these requirements and make sure that you've met all of them before your check ride. Ideally, you'll have them all tabbed out in your logbook or highlighted or whatever. Just it makes it easier on your DPE and it avoids any last minute disappointments. Really, this should be being verified by your CFI before they endorse you. But at the commercial level, you also need to be taking that initiative and being able to take your logbook and show the CFI, look, these are all of my flights and this is how I've met all the requirements, essentially. So that pretty much covers certification requirements, uh, recent flight experience, and record keeping as it pertains to pilot qualifications. Uh, moving down the page, we get to privileges and limitations. What can we do and not do with a commercial pilot certificate? Well, if you're just now getting started studying for the commercial, uh, it may surprise you that the commercial certificate doesn't allow you to do all that much. 14 CFR section 61.133 says that the commercial pilot certificate allows a pilot to fly for compensation or hire or to carry passengers or property for comp compensation or hire. Now, this doesn't automatically clear them for all types of flying. Many of the most common types of commercial aviation we think of, like scheduled air carriers, charter flights, that kind of stuff, they require a special certificate from the FAA to operate. It's part 119 certificate. These can be most commonly based off of parts 121 and part 135. As a commercial pilot, you may be allowed to fly for a company who possesses one of these certificates, but you can't simply buy a plane and start flying people around for money. Now, the discussion of private versus common carriage, commercial operators, and when it's legal for a commercial pilot to accept the flight can be its own episode. It's going to be its own episode probably before long, uh, but I'm not going to go super in-depth about it today. Basically, the commercial pilot can't be the operator of the flight, meaning that they own the aircraft or have the authority to initiate, conduct, or terminate the flight without having the proper air operator certificate. So they have to have that certificate if they are the operator. Commercial pilot can't engage in common carriage without a certificate for the operation either. Generally, this would involve holding out, which is a legal term, essentially means advertising. Uh, if you're advertising your services, you can bet the FAA will have a problem with it unless you have the proper air operator certificate. Uh, you can even get in trouble if you aren't advertising, but if you give the appearance of a willingness to transport anyone, they consider that basically the same as advertising. Like I said, this one has a lot to it. We will cover it in more detail in the future, uh, but the meat and potatoes of it 
is that being both the operator and the pilot without an air operator certificate or conducting common carriage operations, meaning basically that you'll carry anyone indiscriminately, doing that without the proper air operator certificate is prohibited. Like every good rule, this one does have a handful of exceptions, uh, and you can find those in 14 CFR section 119.1, subsection E. Uh, Some of these include flight instruction, sightseeing flights that stay within 25 nautical miles and land where they took off from, ferry flights, pipeline patrol, and local skydiving operations. I'm not going to list all of them, but I will add a link to the regulation in the show notes. Now, besides some of the limitations we've mentioned that apply to all commercial pilots, there is a very important one that applies to commercial pilots without an instrument rating. If you hold a commercial pilot certificate and not an instrument rating, you can't carry passengers on flights more than 50 nautical miles or on any flights at night. In general, uh, it just makes sense to get your instrument rating. You're already working up to the 250 hours you need for the commercial pilot certificate, so use that time to get another rating under your belt. Uh, But the limitation is spelled out in the regulations. Your DPE may ask you about it, so you need to know that. Without an instrument rating, commercial pilot cannot carry passengers on flights more than 50 nautical miles, and they cannot carry passengers on any flights at night. Looking at the ACS here, we're going to skip the medical certificate portion real quick, come back to it. We're going to talk about the documents required to have with you when you exercise your commercial pilot privileges. This one's easy because it's the same as for a private pilot. Uh, You just need your pilot certificate, a photo ID, and a medical certificate. It's that simple. Three things. Pilot certificate, photo ID, medical certificate. And that brings us back to medical certificates in the ACS. Unlike for the checkride, to be legal to actually exercise commercial pilot privileges, that's carrying people or property for compensation or hire, you must hold at least a second-class medical certificate. Medical certificates are another topic that we could spend an entire episode on, but today we're going to focus on the second-class certificate. Like I said, you must have a second-class medical certificate to exercise the privileges of a commercial pilot, and once you've been issued a second-class medical, you can exercise those privileges for 12 calendar months. Once the 12 calendar month is up, it basically reverts to a third-class medical. It's still a second class, but the privileges you can exercise revert to third class privileges. And this is basically private pilot level stuff. No more flying for compensation or higher. Now, how long the certificate is good for at that point depends on your age. So you get the 12 calendar months of second class privileges, and then it reverts to third class privileges. If you're under 40 years old, the day of your second class medical exam, then you're going to retain third class privileges for 48 calendar months after the second class privilege is expired. That means that when you're issued a second class medical, you have those third class, those private pilot privileges for 60 calendar months total. So remember that. Under 40, you get 12 calendar months of second class commercial privileges and 60 calendar months if you're flying for no compensation or higher. If you're 40 or older when you go in for your exam, you still get the same 12 calendar months for the commercial privileges, but only an additional 12 calendar months after it reverts to those third-class privileges. So 12 calendar months of commercial privileges regardless of age, and then if you were 39 or younger at your exam, you get 48 more calendar months of third-class privileges, and if you were 40 or older, you get 12 additional calendar months. That's a lot of numbers. I know there is a good chart in the regulations that spells it out and kind of makes it a little bit more visual. We definitely encourage you to go check that out. The last knowledge item for the pilot qualifications task is basic med privileges and limitations. And unless you're taking your check ride on basic med, 
this is likely going to be a much bigger item on your private pilot check ride than your commercial one because basic med doesn't allow you to fly for compensation or higher. As long as you know that, there's not much to say about it that pertains to the commercial pilot certificate. You just can't exercise commercial pilot privileges on basic med. Now, basic med is a neat thing that the FAA has implemented. Uh, it allows you to fly aircraft of 6,000 pounds or less, carrying five passengers or less, and you have to keep it below 18,000 feet and 250 knots. Uh, and the process for getting on that program is a little bit different from your standard medical certificate. I'll probably do an episode on basic med uh, at some point, but like I said, unless you're on basic med for your check ride, this shouldn't be a large point of discussion for the commercial check ride. It's just not really pertinent. Uh, if you want some additional information, though, be sure to check out Advisory Circular 68-1. The last thing we have to talk about on the pilot qualifications task uh, are the risk management items. Both of those can really be summed up in the discussion of safe versus legal, but in the interest of time, we're going to go ahead and push that discussion to next week. I know this episode has been a bit shorter than normal, uh, but I feel like in the interest of learning, especially without any visual aids, shorter is probably better. Um, ideally, I'd like to keep these in the 20 to 30 minute range if possible, but if you would like to see more, a little bit longer episodes in the future, just let me know. I can definitely make them a little bit longer. Uh, before I go, I did mention at the beginning that uh, some of you guys sent me some goals for 2024, and I'd like to share those real quick just to give everyone a little inspiration for their own goals. Kind of give a shout out to these folks as well. Uh, Willie Peters plans on getting his CFII and multi-engine ratings this year. Corey Rodriguez's goal is to fly more this year. He said last year was kind of a slow year for him in terms of flight time, and he's planning on changing that in 2024. Anthony Tett said his goal this year was to listen to every episode of the Plaid Pilot podcast. I love that. Uh, Anthony has been a supporter of the show since the beginning, and I really can't express how much I appreciate that. Uh, David Klassen, he's another one of those that's been around for a long time, long time supporter. Uh, he plans to finish his instrument rating this year, as well as attend EAA AirVenture at Oshkosh. Uh, he's been working hard towards that instrument rating for a little while now, and uh, he's getting close, so that's exciting. Joe, better known as Tail Dragger Joe on Instagram, uh, plans on getting his airline transport pilot certificate, the ATP, this year. And basically, that's the highest level certificate a pilot can earn. So that's definitely a big deal. Marcus plans on earning his CFI and multi-engine ratings. And Lewis from My Serious Life, I don't want to attempt that last name in slaughter, but Lewis plans on getting his commercial certificate and a seaplane rating. And finally, Mike Briscoe, who was Aviator of the Week a good while back when he earned his ATP, has two aviation goals this year. He's going to knock out the first goal in April when he'll be adding a Gulfstream G650 type rating to a certificate. And his second goal was to be back on the podcast. And I'm 100% down for that anytime. Mike is a great guy, fun to talk to. He's just a wealth of knowledge about corporate aviation, part 135, part 91, that whole side of the house. So I do look forward to getting him back on the show and talking about that kind of stuff. And in case you want to go check out these folks and follow along as they work towards their goals, I will include their Instagram handles in the show notes. I think I can link that. If I can't, you can just copy and paste into the search bar on Instagram and find these guys, check out what they're doing. A lot of neat things that they're doing, uh, both in the air and on the ground. Well, that's all for this week. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. To make sure you never miss an episode, be sure to follow the podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope to catch you next week, but until then, y'all stay safe out there. Keep the dirty side down, the pointy end forward, and as my wife always says, fluffy landings.